0: Our scripture reading today is from Micah 5, 1 through 5. It's Micah 5, 1 through 5. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us this morning. So I was thinking I've been kind of wrestling with this this passage how to how to get into it how to talk about it and it occurred to me that it's it's really a it's kind of a Christmas text in a lot of ways that it 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 ties into the nativity story and it's it's tempting to, to want to read a passage like this where the Lord makes this promise that, that the formula of the promise is, is um, you're, in this, you're in this difficulty and, and this struggle right now, but, but one day redemption and rescue is going to come. And we can think about this sometimes as though what's being said is uh, things are difficult now, but later they won't be as difficult. And uh, that's not really how this world goes, is it? It's always difficult. Like there's always, there's always trouble. There's always things happening um, that are full of, of, of struggle. And, and so, so the question that I want to put before us as we get into this passage is I just want to ask you to think about what in your life right now are you trying to just hold together? What in your life are you just, you're trying to hold something together, it's where you're troubled in heart, and it's consuming, and you feel like if you take your eyes off of it for a second, everything's just going to come undone. Because if you live that way, you can, you can move through the world that way. You can move through this entire life that way, always just feeling the burden of some sense of fragility if you are not the one who is preserving and holding all things together. There's a prayer that kind of runs through this message, and that prayer is simply this. Jesus, rule over me. Jesus, be my peace. Jesus, rule over me. Jesus, be my peace. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, we get this verse. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. What did Herod hear that made him troubled? Part of what he heard was the passage that TK just read for us. This passage from Micah this story about a king who will come from Bethlehem. Now, how we respond to news about Christ or news from Christ is really affected. Our response is affected by what we're presently trying to hold together and not let fall apart. It's also affected by what we're willing to release and what we're not willing to release. And so I want to walk through the passage today, spend a little time in a moment with, with Herod the Great uh, before wrapping up this message by finding ourselves in us. So in it. So let's, let's come along for a couple of stories. First, Micah 5. I'm going to reread the passage again because it, 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 it helps to hear this passage more than once. Okay, so verse 1, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughters of troops, because siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So this book has been building, we've been talking about it, that that exile is coming, that a siege on Jerusalem is coming, and it's happening now. It's happening, and Israel is in a position where they can't muster any army to protect itself. They are dead in the water. And so there's this great unraveling, we talked about it last week, this unraveling of the old Israel, and a remnant now is being built. And here the judge, who is presumably the king, is uh, he's being humiliated publicly by the invading army. He's being hit in the face publicly in front of everybody. And so this is, this is really, for, for God's people, a, a swallow-hard kind of moment because whatever hope they might have been holding on to that maybe the exile won't happen is just vanishing before their eyes. And what's more is they know that God is in it. It's not that God is just somewhere else. It's that he's the architect of this chastisement and this discipline that's coming. And then then we get one of the most breathtaking stretches of Scripture that you're going to find. To you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel." Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Ephrathah is the district that Jerusalem or that Bethlehem is a part of. It's too small to be a clan. It's an area that's just underestimated, like David, who came from there. Nobody could imagine that this place would deliver unto Israel one king, let alone two. And that's what Micah is saying here. It's not just that David, the king, is going to come from here, but this second king who predates time itself. And this king is, as we see from Matthew, Jesus. He is the son of God, the son of man, the one born of the Virgin Mary, the object of Herod the Great's paranoia. And he is coming from of old, ancient days, or as Paul wrote in Colossians, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let that not pass over you too quickly. In him all things hold together. What freedom to know that it is not in you all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Jesus, rule over me. Jesus, be my peace. This is what the ruler, ancient and strong, will be for God's people. He he will be their shepherd. The people will dwell secure in the presence of this faithful shepherd who will be full of strength, full of majesty, and he will be their peace. And we say, how will this come to be? And this is where we're reminded that it's not as though things were turbulent for Micah and his people, but then later it wasn't as turbulent. But there's this turbulence that runs through, and yet God is at work in all of it. He's at work in all of it. Incidentally, this is not in my notes, but last week uh, I was with a group of people and one of the people in this group made a comment about Cool Springs that just made me light up, and I'm going to share it with you now, and you can think about it. And the comment was this. She said, I love, I love how each of the Christ, Christ Pres locations have a different vibe. You know, you go to Music Row, and it's, it's, they were, she was speaking about the music. She said, you know, Music Row is kind of a singer-songwriter thing, and Old Hickory, it's kind of got some, some, some polish, and it's been around 40 years. And she said, but Cool Springs? we're bluesy and I loved it I was like we are bluesy we're totally bluesy and then I thought I'm kind of a bluesy preacher like we're a we're a since my baby left me kind of church that 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 you know I'm not it's never really kind of been my thing to say hey let's all get in a room together and I'm just gonna fill you up with encouragement instead I'm gonna say things like it's turbulent then it's turbulent later too and it kind of stays turbulent in the middle we're bluesy. I like it. We're going to lean into it. And uh, every, every time that Gary Forsyth plays piano, uh, which is most Sundays now, I, I, I try to always lean into his, and whisper into his ear. At least half the time I say this. I get in his ear and what do I say, Gary? I say, dirty it up. <laughs> Don't I? <laughs> Give us the blue notes. I want the dirty notes. I want the dirty notes. I want the d- dirty notes. Anyway... That all seemed to apply to this message today. (laughs) Because he's gonna be their peace in a turbulent, turbulent time. And how it's gonna happen is in a very turbulent kind of way. And that is, there's gonna be a baby who's gonna be born. And he's gonna be born in Bethlehem to a young virgin and her supportive husband who are navigating life under the mania of a paranoid ruler who has a thirst for blood, an insatiable, unquenchable thirst for blood. And it's a story that shows how we might think about what makes for peace. What actually would make for peace in your heart? Because that's really the question. So for Herod, here's the thing. It wasn't that complicated for him. If it took killing every last baby boy in Israel, then that is just what he would do. Herod the Great would be considered a paranoid sociopath, which was a personality that was perfect for the job that he held as the ruler of Judea under the authority of Rome. Herod was a builder, he was an architect, and he built an empire in such a way that it created this illusion that he was a man who could be in many places at the same time. He built fortresses everywhere. He built them in Herodium, Sebasti, Machaerus, Masada. He also built palaces in Caesarea, Jericho, Jerusalem. And the effect that it had was at any moment he could have been in any one of them. And so at every moment he might as well have been in all of them. And his affinity for architecture was as well known as his obsessive mistrust of those that he couldn't control and those that he also could control. There could only be one ruler in Judea, and this was Herod's passionate commitment, a commitment that he demonstrated his fidelity to in the fact that already the bones of one wife, several sons, and multiple distant relatives were all gathered in the family tomb as the result of of his conviction that each of them at various points in time had been involved in conspiracies to have him killed, and sometimes they were. While this is happening, while he's ruling, there are these these learned men from the East who are students of sacred texts, and they hear that somewhere in Judea a boy had been born who was the king of the Jews. And they remember what the Jewish holy book said. In Numbers 24, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so when they noticed a star that they did not know come rising up out of the west, they went to follow it. And it led them to Jerusalem. And they wanted to find this king, and they wanted to honor him. And so they began to ask around, where is he? When Herod heard about these learned men from the east and he learned about their quest, he called the chief priests and the scribes together to tell him everything that they knew about this king. And he was kind of smoldering with anger at the notion that they'd been holding out on him, that there was even going to be a king. And so he summoned them together. Give me a theology lesson here. And that's exactly what the priests did. They said, well, the prophet Micah said that the Messiah would be born in in Bethlehem, just a few miles south where, where Jacob's love, Rachel, is buried and where King David was born. And they gave Herod these details just matter-of-factly, they knew them. They gave them without confusion, without hesitation. They quoted scripture to the verse. Still curiously, not one of these religious leaders seemed motivated to go see for themselves if the Magi were right. They couldn't be bothered at all with this. And you would think that these should have been the most expectant people of all when it came to the Messiah's coming, and yet all that the priests really showed when Herod summoned them, and they relayed the prophetic details of their coming king, all they really showed was apathy, maybe even boredom. John 1 tells us that Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him. And they didn't seek him then, and they wouldn't seek him later either. Even when he was grown, they didn't believe in him. But Herod believed. He kind of believed. He believed enough, at least, to worry that he needed to know, is there another king? And as one who was prone to err on the side of caution, it was just enough for Herod that these magi had come so far to find him and told the story of the star that they were following. He figured he should probably play this one close to the vest. If there was such a king, maybe he could get the magi to just lead him to this king. Maybe if he feigned a desire to bring a tribute of his own, the Magi would trust him and lead him. And so he said to them, hey, when you find him, if you find him, come tell me where he is, because I have a little something of my own that I wanna give him. And so after this, the Magi leave for Bethlehem and they find him, they find Jesus. And it's no wonder when they find him why he was nothing more than just a murmur in Jerusalem because all they found was a child. They found a child in the arms of a young woman who was practically still a girl. And as Isaiah said, there was just nothing about him that would attract them to him. There was no beauty or majesty. There was no miracle that they could see, even though there were miracles. There was no miracle that they could see. There was no particular greatness, and yet there was something. There was something there about that moment that Mary and Joseph and the Magi and the child knew. Something that bent the knees of those scholars to worship when they saw him. We don't know how many of the Magi there were. We we say the three wise men, what what we really have is three gifts. It doesn't tell us how many Magi there were, that there were just three gifts. And so one of the Magi moves forward On behalf of the rest and he produces a purse of gold and he lays it at the child's feet and another comes with a flask of myrrh and then another comes with a box of frankincense and they lay it at the feet of this king and they're unaware while they're doing this that they're likely funding a hasty trip to Egypt that's about to happen due to Herod's paranoia but they give these gifts simply because they want to honor this one who was born king of the Jews. And he wasn't even their king. Israel's God was not their God. And yet here they were because the thought of what they had read in the Jewish scriptures, that there was this God of mercy with healing in his wings, had awakened in them a desire to be close to the one through whom that healing would flow. And so they give their gifts. And that night as they sleep, An angel of the Lord who was unfamiliar to them, but familiar to Mary and Joseph, appears to them in their dreams and paints for them the bloody truth of who Herod is and what he means to do with this child. And the angel tells them to take another way home. And so they do. And as their caravan creeps quietly out of Bethlehem into the Judean wilderness, Joseph along with the rest of the city are sleeping. And the angel of the Lord then comes to him in a dream, and says, Joseph, you need to get up. And you need to take this child and his mother and you need to go to Egypt. And you need to stay there until I say, because Herod is searching for your child. And he will not rest until he has destroyed him. And so Joseph says, Mary, wake up, we need to leave. And she questions him, and he says, the angel of the Lord came to me in my dream, Herod, once our boy dead, And the angel said, we'd be safe in Egypt. He told me we need to wait there, so let's go. And they go. And with that, Joseph and Mary and the baby slip out of the city, the city of his forefathers, and they go to Egypt, where they stay until Herod dies a couple years later. It's a fascinating part of the story of Jesus' life isn't it? We don't have a lot about his youth, but we have this. While all this is happening, most of the residents of Bethlehem didn't notice a thing. But heaven and earth had converged here, in this little pocket of the promised land, for the most important birth in the history of all humanity. Throughout all this, every member of the heavenly host had their eyes fixed on this village just south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Why? Because of what Micah said: "From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure." For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Jesus rule over me. Jesus be my peace. I want to conclude by looking at how the characters in this story respond to God's promise of peace in the form of a king. Specifically Herod, the religious leaders and the magi. And want us to find ourselves in here for Herod he was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him now you may think well I, I don't really how can I relate to Herod the Great like he was the ruler of a kingdom I've not met anyone in my life who isn't trying to rule a kingdom maybe small but it's what we do we try to hold things together Herod had A kingdom with thousands of people and lots of land. But you've got a kingdom and I've got a kingdom and we rule over them and we have ways that we go about ruling over them and things that we fear losing if we don't rule over it in certain ways. And Herod was the kind where when he was troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And I ask, can you relate to that? Are you even like this? Or the next little section of things I wrote in my notes here, I struggled with. Uh, if I write these down, I'll have to say them out loud. And I'm going to go ahead and say them out loud. I'm going to ask some questions, and these, are, these might be these are challenging questions, okay? Um, are you somebody where there's something deep inside of you that is so consumed with preserving control over what you have that you're absolutely terrified of losing your hold on this world? A further question. Are you someone for whom your mood sets the temperature in whatever room you're in? And everyone around you responds. People wonder which version of you they're going to get. People know not to cross you. What is that about? because you've gotta be exhausted. That's Herod. It's Herod the Great trying to just hold it together. Do you know, do you know, that what Micah is telling us here in this passage is this, Christ wants to give you peace. He wants to give you peace, the kind where it isn't your responsibility to hold your world together anymore. That in him, all things hold together. That he wants to give you the kind of peace where you dwell secure knowing that you are kept by the shepherd of your soul Jesus rule over me Jesus be my peace the religious leaders they respond with apathy because they're not curious anymore they're just the smart the smartest people in the room And so they're not curious to learn things that might contradict beliefs that have led them to the place of power that they now hold. And so it's fascinating when you look at the religious leaders in the gospel to see what is it that actually calls them to action versus what is it that just seems to bore them. I mean, here they have news of the Messiah's coming. And it doesn't even register with them as something worth investigating. That surely they would be the ones who would know if the Messiah was coming. And it's not until Jesus' presence actually threatens their perceived stability and power that they get up in arms and they react. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe this is where you are, that you've so settled into a rhythm of being in this world. a rhythm that you can manage, that you've just kind of lost any sense of wonder. You're not curious about anything anymore. Vincent van Gogh, quoting an old saint, wrote to his brother this. He said, in most men there exists a poet who died young, whom the man survived. Is that you? Is the poet on life support, is he dead? Do you know that what Micah is saying in this passage, he shall be your peace, is he saying the Lord wants to capture your heart with a sense of wonder and beauty and joy and awe, the kind that brings tears to your eyes readily, longing for something more, for something deeper, for something eternal, for the poet to live. Jesus, rule over me. Jesus, Be my peace. And then you have the magi. They just respond with curiosity because they hear of one of the scriptures that's been spoken of and they hear it in this posture of wanting to discover the truth for themselves. They want to see. They're curious. You may be here in this room and and would say, I'm not a Christian. I'm talking to you here. The Magi are the people who they they want to see with their own eyes God's revelation of himself. They're curious. They don't know, but they're curious. And so what do they do? They give of their time and their resources to go put themselves there, to go investigate. And they do in a posture of hoping that it's true and willing to see something that they've not seen before. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you are somebody who you're curious about the things of God, but you're unsure but you want to discover, you want to discover the truth. And so let me phrase it this way, what what star has God hung in the sky for you? What strange circumstance bids you follow? With the suspicion in the back of your mind that maybe God himself is calling you to faith. Maybe for the first time, or maybe he's calling you to a deeper faith than what you've known. Maybe being in a room like this or even hearing the words that's come, that you're hearing from me right now is that, is that star that's bidding you to follow. Do you know that the Lord delights in making himself known? Seek him. You will find him. What makes for peace? That's the question. And what Micah is saying in today's passage is that it is the rule of Christ over us that makes for peace. No matter what the tempest is, no matter what the turbulence is, no matter what the unsettling sequence of events that's happening in us and around us, What makes for peace is the rule of Christ, surrendering to that. And so may He work in our hearts in such a way that this prayer comes more and more easily to our lips Jesus, rule over me. Jesus, be my peace. Let's pray. Jesus, rule over us. Jesus, be our peace. Amen.